Welcome to Now Let's Talk, the podcast with Vanessa Corwin and Kathleen Kahn. As the world opens up, we'll be talking to people about their experiences during COVID, as well as the joys and challenges of life beyond the pandemic. Hello, I'm Vanessa Corwin. And I'm Kathleen Kahn. While many refer to before the pandemic, when discussing COVID, the reality is that it's still very much with us. And we are now facing monkeypox and polio. To answer our questions, including some from our listeners, today's guest is Hannah Newman, Director of Infection Prevention at Lenox Hill Hospital's Department of Epidemiology in New York City. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start with COVID. Now, uh, we're hearing a lot about Paxlovid and rebound infections. Uh, Certainly some very high profile people have had this, like the president and the first lady, etc. So why does this happen? And if we get COVID, should we take Paxlovid? Sure. And, and first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. Um, it, it's really great to join you guys and, and talk about some of the things that are going on in the infectious disease world. Yes. Yeah, so rebound infection is a phenomenon that we see both in treated and untreated uh, COVID-19 patients. Um, I really think recovery from COVID is not a linear process. There's a lot of nuances. But, you know, after the game changer uh, antiviral started to be used uh, late last year, Uh, we have started to notice this perplexing trend um, where some people who have taken the drug may recover and then symptoms and detectable virus vanish only to mysteriously return two to eight days later. The cause of rebound remains unclear. I think that there's still a lot of information we need to learn um, and studies that need to happen. Uh, But there have been some um, hypotheses on why this is happening. I mean, really experts are thinking that it's unlikely to be due to, let's say, drug resistance, but more testing whether this viral replication, which was suppressed by using the drug, might bounce back whenever the drug vanishes from the body. It's really, it's hard to say right now, but I I think what's important to note is that, um, you know, the CDC still recommends that um, those who are at risk for progressing to more severe disease or hospitalization should still get this treatment. We want to keep people out of the hospital. We want to make sure that we're preventing deaths. And this is doing just that. We might see viral levels return. You know, symptoms are generally mild or sometimes not even there at all. What we're seeing is that the rebounds are not serious. You know, is it possible to get have COVID and not know you've got it unless you test? Yeah, absolutely. Asymptomatic infection um, is unfortunately a um, one of the ways that COVID presents. We know that breakthrough infections can occur. And really, the goal of vaccination is to keep people out of the hospital, to keep people alive. And it's doing just that. But I think um, because of this, you know, it might even be more common to have milder cases or maybe cases where we don't have any symptoms at all. Um, and in those situations, um, really, you would need a test to know that that you've had COVID. Um, So really, that goes into when should we be testing? Obviously, it's not um, realistic for someone to take a COVID test every single day. Um, But certainly, if somebody is experiencing symptoms, that is obviously an indication for testing. 
Um, if you're exposed to somebody who has had a confirmed case of COVID, um, testing is recommended. We don't want to do it too early so that it gives time for those viral levels to be um, detectable. But uh, the recommendations is uh, five days after an exposure, uh, regardless of whether or not the person is experiencing symptoms, um, that would be a time to, to look to see if maybe it's an asymptomatic infection. Um, and of course, you know, you want to consider testing if you're going to be in contact with someone at high risk for severe disease. You know, so for example, if you uh, go to a concert and the next weekend you're going to see Aunt Sally, who uh, might be you know, immunosuppressed, maybe she has cancer, she's at more at risk for severe disease, that would be a good time to take a test to make sure that if um, there is something that's brewing, um, if there's an asymptomatic infection that can be passed along to the next person, um, we're protecting those who are more vulnerable. And of course, we'd want to pair that with protective measures like masking, social distancing, um, finding well-ventilated areas to meet, and all of the protective um, actions that we've been taking throughout the entirety of the pandemic. Absolutely. So let's move on to long COVID now. We've been hearing more about that lately. So what do we know about long COVID? And do we know um, who is most at risk? Sure. And just to familiarize the audience with long COVID, this is a phenomenon. You may have heard it as long hauler COVID, chronic COVID post-COVID conditions, long COVID, et cetera. But basically uh, what we're saying is that this is a phenomenon where people can continue to experience symptoms of COVID um, after they've been infected with the virus that are long-term effects. And it can happen you know, for, for weeks, months, or even years after uh, the original infection. So there's no magic formula to say who is going to get long COVID. You're more at risk of getting it if you've had a severe case, but it's happened with mild to moderate illness. It's happened with asymptomatic infections. It's even happened for some people who didn't even know they had COVID in the past. But in terms of uh, who's more at risk, like I said, you know, um, post-COVID conditions are more often found uh, for people who have had severe illness. Um, but really, anybody who's been infected is at risk. And I like to use the analogy of car accidents. Um, the more you get COVID, the more at risk you are. Every time you get into a car, you're at risk of possibly getting into an accident. But if you're driving for 50 miles every day, you might have more opportunities for this, right? The other uh, population who might be at more risk of developing post-COVID conditions uh, are those who are not vaccinated as well. And again, you know, these are populations that would be more at risk from getting COVID in the first place. Now we have a new updated COVID booster in the works. So can you talk a little bit about that? What do we know about it? When will we be able to get it? The thing about viruses is that as a survival mechanism for a virus, its main goal is to be able to replicate and continue on. So um, what happens is that a lot of times, you know, these viruses will have mutations and if it makes it easier to spread, um, easier to survive, that is going to naturally select itself. So um, this is where we get our variants, right? So we had original COVID, we went through Delta, we, now we're on Omicron, um, you know, it, it's continually changing. And I mean, I guess one of the positives of this is that we've seen um, a shift from a lower respiratory infection to uh, more upper respiratory infections, which 
has kept a lot of people out of the hospital, has probably saved a lot of deaths. But, um, you know, in this mutating, the virus has somehow found a way to uh, spread more easily. And also it's changed a bit to where um, there's more breakthroughs from vaccination. So basically with this new booster that's in development, um, it was really looking to update uh, the booster itself to be able to account for these changes in the virus. Um, so we're hoping, um, you know, there's no announced date for when it'll be available. We're hoping fall, um, but this will be an, an opportunity to give um, a booster to help with some of these newer variants that are uh, evading our, our current vaccine strategies. Great. So it's, yeah, just updating the vaccine to be more effective against these current variants. Absolutely. And you can kind of think of it like our flu vaccine, right? Every year we have a new formulation for our flu shot. Um, so this kind of goes in line with that. Let's move on to monkeypox. So briefly, uh, can you just clarify how it is transmitted? Sure. So monkeypox is a virus. It's a DNA virus. And it's transmitted uh, a few ways, either with direct contact with a rash or sore for someone who's been infected with the virus. Um, it can also be contact with um, things that are saturated with the fluids of those uh, rashes or sores. So think, you know, clothing, bedding, um, other items that are used by a person where it may have been contaminated by the virus. Um, and then prolonged face-to-face -face contact. So in, in this outbreak, we're really seeing uh, the virus spread through very close intimate contact. So this can be different kinds of sex, oral, anal, vaginal sex, but also through kissing, hugging, cuddling, anything that's gonna have very prolonged um, direct body-to-body -body contact. But I do, I wanna make it really clear, this is not um, a sexually transmitted infection um, that you would think of like HIV or chlamydia or gonorrhea. We're seeing, it transmits a lot with sexual activity, but really it's because of that very close intimate contact where you can come in contact um, with infectious matter. One of the things that we are hearing that the outbreak of, of monkeypox is prevalent among gay, the gay community, bisexual men who have sex with men. This scares me a little bit to pinpoint it to the gay community because that is exactly what happened when we had AIDS. And everybody else thought, not my problem, I'm not gay. I'm mm -hmm. afraid that this might be happening again here. Do you have any, uh, can you give us a little info on that? Sure. Um, so while we're seeing the majority of cases right now um, in the men who have sex with men community, I think it's absolutely important to stress that anybody can get this virus if they come into contact with it. Um, you know, viruses do not discriminate against sex, gender, sexual orientation, um, and really anyone who's been in close physical contact with someone who has monkeypox can also contract this virus. It's not a gay disease. It's just happening among that community right now because, I mean, you have to think about it. If, if you're having um, close contact with other people in your same community, that's how viruses spread. You know, sexual networks are also not fixed. Uh, you have to think back to this HIV um, epidemic, which did begin in one community, um, but then spread to other networks. It just takes, you know, one jumping over. So um, I think really the takeaway here is that certainly there are higher risk activities and communities where 
Um, we have to be super cognizant of activity and, and prevention measures. Um, but it's important for all of us to be aware of the symptoms, be aware of how it spreads so that um, we can take healthy actions to um, prevent the further spread of this virus until it's completely under control. Luckily here, we have tools like vaccines to slow the spread. It's not like the beginning of HIV where it was brand new, even COVID when it was brand new and learning about it, we have this base of information that we can use to our advantage. Um, the other thing I, I feel like we have an advantage for monkeypox versus let's say COVID is that um, an individual is actually not contagious until they are symptomatic. So we've all been symptom monitoring since the beginning of the pandemic to look for any signs of illness so that we can stay home and isolate. I should probably talk a little bit about what those symptoms are. So really, you know, what we want people to look out for the hallmark symptom of this disease is really the itchy and painful rash or sores. And they can look like pimples or blisters. Um, a lot of times they begin on the face, on the hands, uh, on the feet, but it can really be uh, over any part of the body. We're also seeing uh, in the rectum and in the genital area as well. Um, oftentimes there can be a prodrome or a pre-symptom that precedes the rash. Um, and usually this presents uh, similarly to the flu. So think things like fever, sore throat, um, a feeling of fatigue, just a general feeling of malaise. If you feel off, um, certainly if you have any rash developed, uh, you want to get checked out by a healthcare provider, essentially get tested and be able to take the actions to prevent the further spread. We've been hearing that uh, there, are, there are some children who have been infected. How does that happen? Is it uh, that they come into contact with these uh, towels or bed sheets or? Yeah, so, uh, you know, before this outbreak, um, household transmission uh, was a very common phenomenon that we'd see. I mean, it's not just, you know, intimate sexual contact. Um, like you said, it can be contact with, or uh, it can be contact with uh, contaminated items like blankets and towels. Um, you have to think, you know, if there's a parent, for example, you know, you're holding your children, maybe they sleep next to each other. Um, there's certainly a lot of opportunities for skin-to-skin contact. So that could also be a potential uh, mode of transmission as well. But, um, you know, again, like I said, there is an association with intimate contact for this illness. But that's not the only way it can spread. We still have to be very aware of linens. You know, anyone who's sick should be wearing a mask so that there's not that prolonged face-to-face -face contact or saliva, things of that matter. Like in, in COVID with the uh, medication that's being given, once you have monkeypox, there, there is no medication, is there? Uh, it's the vaccine, but can you have the vaccine after you've had monkeypox? Um, so, so there's a couple of different situations here. If you have been exposed to monkeypox, we actually do give the vaccine as post-exposure uh, prophylaxis, depending on the level of exposure. So let's say, you know, somebody who had um, broken skin or had their uh, mucous membranes come into contact with a direct wound or sore, um, that would be a very high-risk exposure. And that would probably be a case where they would have post-exposure prophylaxis um, administered in the form of the Genios vaccine. If someone has been infected and they're symptomatic, it's mostly symptom, you know, monitoring, supportive care. 
Uh, but there has been a treatment called TPOX that is also uh, available for some patients and also, you know, just being able to have that pain control, um, given that some of the lesions can be very painful. Now, we, we have this vaccine uh, for monkeypox. Can you tell us who are the best candidates to receive this vaccine? Sure. And, you know, the eligibility is really set by, um, by the state or, and by the CDC. Uh, and this may evolve as the outbreak evolves. Um, and it's also based on vaccine supply. But right now, what we're really trying to do is get shots in the arms of the people who are most at risk. So right now, there are a couple of eligibility requirements, um, and people who meet all of them can now be vaccinated. And that includes gay, bisexual, or other men who have sex with men, transgender, gender nonconforming, or gender non-binary folks who are also having sex with men. People must be 18 or older, um, and they must have had uh, multiple or anonymous sex partners in the last two weeks. Now, if a person gets monkeypox and then they recover, are they immune? Someone who has recovered from a virus generally has some protective period um, after recovery. I don't think we can definitively say how long that period lasts. Um, but if I were to counsel somebody who just recovered from monkeypox, I would not recommend the vaccine for them. I feel that they have, um, at least in this short-term period, some protection there. Having a low immune system, doesn't that doesn't... Uh tie into monkeypox, does it? Because I know somebody who said, well, I want the vaccine because I have problems with my immune system. Just having, uh, you know, issues with immune suppression alone is not one of the eligibility requirements right now. I mean, if somebody who is immunosuppressed and is also in this community and participating in high-risk activities, I would certainly even more so than, you know, someone who's immunocompetent recommend that they get this vaccine. But, you know, really we're focusing on these risk factors here um, that I had mentioned in the eligibility requirements at this time. And honestly, you know, right now that, that's the only people who are allowed to given the, the requirements of the state and the CDC. In your view, what is the outlook in terms of containing monkeypox at this time? Sure. Um, I mean, we're certainly working um, with the city and state with the vaccines that we have available. I, I really feel like this is our greatest weapon against further spread um, in, in conjunction with awareness of symptoms and how it spreads so that we can maybe modify behavior to do uh, less risky activity that, that could be spreading monkeypox um, at this time. But uh, what I can say is, uh, you know, at, at my health system, uh, between Long Island and the city, we've put more than 5,000 doses into arms, even more with the city supply. Uh, there are uh, pod locations in Manhattan, Queens, Staten Island, parts of Long Island. Uh, people were signing up. They were very eager to get their vaccine. And since we've been deploying vaccines, I mean, really, you look at it as a bell curve, and we're starting to see cases come down. We're kind of seeing um, the latter end of that bell. And I think that that's a good outlook. So I feel very confident that we will be hopefully <laughs> talking less about monkeypox in the next few weeks and months. Yes, we certainly hope so. So now let us move on to polio. 
which was found recently in New York City wastewater and was also discovered in wastewater that was tested for COVID uh, back in April, uh, according to news reports. So can you talk about uh, the implications of this? What does this all mean? So wastewater surveillance uh, is a strategy that we can use to detect levels of the virus, which is often found in stool, to give us an idea whether or not there are active cases or transmission in a community. It's important to note that you know we're nobody's going to get polio from the water. Um, it's really just a surveillance system where we can kind of see what's going on with communities. So we have uh, had a confirmed case of polio north of New York City. And really what we want to focus on here is vaccination. We know that vaccines are a proven strategy to eradicate polio. We get completely eradicated polio from the United States. Um, so really um, what we know from our confirmed case is that it occurred in an unvaccinated individual. And we just know right now that anybody who's not up to date with their vaccinations should do so as, as soon as they're eligible. Um, if it's a, a younger child or you know, if you're an adult to certainly continue um, receiving that series of vaccines to prevent any further spread. Vanessa and I both assumed that we all have been vaccinated for polio in order to even begin school. Is that still true? And how did this person, you know, I don't know if it's the law, but you said they were not vaccinated for polio. My feeling is that, you know, the risk to the general public is very low because you're absolutely right. Like this polio immunization is part of the routine vaccination schedule in the United States. Um, and actually, you know, CDC data has shown that over 92% of U.S. children under 24 months are vaccinated against polio. Um, this is great coverage. And I'm confident that this is good levels that we want to see to protect um, against any potential threat. But you, you can find pockets of unvaccinated individuals. And that's really where we worry about because it's a very contagious virus. Um, it can spread person to person through contact with stool, from respiratory droplets, from sneezing or coughing. Um, so it can certainly go through an unvaccinated community very quickly. There was other reports um, of, of cases of polio in the UK. And I'm going to give some background here, but there's a what we call a type 2 polio virus. And this is polio virus that's derived from an oral vaccine that uses a live form of the virus. So we don't use that in the United States. We use an inactivated uh, virus in our vaccine, uh, but there are still parts of the world uh, that deploy this kind of vaccine. So it, it could have been that that's how it started. Um, maybe the person was asymptomatic, but you can still spread the virus uh, through your stool at that time. And then if you come in contact with an unvaccinated individual, you know, that's how you can see the virus jump from person to person. So that's a potential theory. I think really the takeaway here is that the United States is really good at vaccinating people against polio. We might just want to, um, you know, look at, at communities that might not be up to date and make sure that um, we're getting people vaccinated as soon as possible so that we don't see further spread. One more question. I mean, thank God we have this the polio vaccine. Just because it's starting again in some communities, do you think that we would need a stronger dose of uh, the vaccine or the one we have is? There's no indication that our current vaccine will not be effective. I think um, if you completed the series as a child or even if it was a bit delayed, um, if you're up to date with your vaccines, you should feel very confident that you are protected against polio virus. 
So last but not least, if uh, people want to get more information about any of these topics that we've discussed, where should they go? So misinformation is a huge problem in the world today. So I always recommend um, reading trusted sources that have been verified. So the CDC is really um, the number one uh, source of truth, if you will, um, for all things that, you know, infection related. So they have some great pages um, that can give background on the diseases about what we can do in the community to protect ourselves and to protect others. Um, so I would, I would recommend people going to CDC first and foremost, but the, the health department has some great resources. Just make sure that you're actually looking at these verified sources and not just taking word off of Facebook and social media um, because some, some information can get out there that's not the best advice or may not be completely accurate. And we want to make sure that we are spreading good information, spreading um, you know, things that are going to help people. Oh, Hannah, thank you so much. This is great information, and I think it's going to help a lot of people out there. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure talking with you guys. Um, I, I really appreciate you having me on here and, and giving me a platform to, um, to give out some information on these very relevant viruses right now. Thanks for joining us today. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your comments and questions to info at nowletstalkthepodcast.com and check out our website at nowletstalkthepodcast.com. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.